This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where customers who save by switching their home and car save nearly $800 on average. Quote at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's the weirdest job you've ever worked? I don't know. I've done a lot of weird Craigslist stuff because of uh, fixing cars and stuff, but they've they've been pretty weird sometimes. I've met a lot of strange, strange people. Like just doing like simple brake jobs for people who are like psychopaths, like losing control, like mid mid conversation kind of things. But um, one guy <laughs> wanted me not to fix his car, but just to hang out and be best friends because he didn't even have a car. But he he like insisted. He left voicemails and kept asking all the time. It was really funny. No, absolutely not. He was he was a stage three killer. I did not trust him whatsoever. <laughs> Previously, in Greater Boston, Leon Stamatis died on a roller coaster. He muttered a single word, "Nope," then preemptively expired. He understood the need to be proactive. That was why he'd begun job hunting. Gemma doesn't want to hear about dreams, dreams either. Uh, dreams are a thing she deals with at work. Don't tell me about if dreams. If she didn't have to go to work, Gemma says, she would sleep, until, sleep noon. until noon. They had long debated which of them should carry the child they both wanted. When Charlotte's company shuttered, it seemed sensible to let that make the decision. Braintree. Right. Peabody. Haverhill. Lowell. All right. Fall River. Cambridge. Quincy. I can't say that one without a reason. Uh, Arlington. Framingham. Newton. Lynn. Worcester. This Peabody. is Waltham. Quincy. Arlington. Revere. Somerville. Arlington. This is Lemonster. Haverhill. Brookline. Medford. Somerville. Cambridge. This is. This is. This is. Greater Boston. This week in Greater Boston, Gemma receives an anniversary gift from Third Sight Media and immediately begins plotting its destruction in The Crystal Ball. Leon applies for a job from beyond the grave in Will and Determination, and Michael is not quite as down on his luck as he thinks in Guy Without Truck. In Episode 3, Professional Prognostication. Dear Persephone, uh, I've been offered an amazing job, but it's on the other side of the country. Should I go? I'm a Taurus. Sincerely, college grad in Levittown. Dear Persephone, my husband and I have been trying to conceive for over a year without luck. What rituals can we perform to improve our chances? Thank you. Still trying in Waltham. Dear Persephone, a mysterious brown stain has been spreading out across the ceiling in my kitchen. Do I have a poltergeist? Thank you. Haunted overhead in Dorchester. Dear Persephone, my pomace tells me that I will have a long life, but my spirit medium disagrees. Who should I believe? Best regards, conflicted in Cleveland. Dear Persephone, I found a strange pair of panties with a phone number written on them in my husband's underwear drawer. They're not even my size. Please ask the spirits if he's having an affair. Regards, suspicious undies in New Haven. 
Dear Persephone, what should I do about anything? Please help. Overwhelmed by everything in Patchog. Gemma Linzer Coolidge was lost in contemplation of the offending object. A simple glass ball, flat on one side so as not to roll, etched with Gemma's name, the date, and the third site media logo. They hadn't called it a glass ball when they'd pulled it from the pneumatic tube that had ferried it down to the break room, where everyone was gathered for the presentation. They called it a crystal ball. That's the proper sort of gift from the publisher of magazines about astrological investment and psychic psychiatry and other such predatory flummery. But crystal is expensive, hardly the sort of thing you give an employee for a mere twenty years' service. Still, her colleagues drooled over it with envy, especially Gerald Poletti, a particularly vacuous pudding head she had the misfortune to manage. The card that accompanied the crystal read, Congratulations! Here's to twenty more. It was signed, With Regards, from Third Sight Media. The people upstairs didn't need to bother with names. Gemma would have preferred to let that anniversary go past unremarked, but Tyrell, in human resources, wouldn't allow it. We can't let your contributions go unappreciated. But really, he just wanted an opportunity to arrange a party. Get everyone out of the office and into a kitschy restaurant for an hour or two. He'd encourage Gemma to invite her wife. But she never even mentioned it to Charlotte, who was pregnant and shouldn't be eating germy flash-frozen pseudo-cuisine. Gemma hadn't even brought the glass memento home. She just left it at work, sitting atop a stack of unread resumes. The question now was what to do with it. Or rather, how to do away with it. Gerald, or rather, Earthman, as that was the name he insisted everyone actually call him, would be horrified by her intentions and so she would be sure to let details of its fate slip to him after the fact. Heat was her first thought. It wouldn't burn, but she was sure it could melt. That's how glass was shaped in the first place, after all. But it was a solid ball, nearly four inches in diameter. That much glass would require an awful lot of heat. How much heat would it take to do more than scorch the surface? Gemma supposed... She could ask the ball itself how best to destroy it. She could wave her hands above it, mumbling prognosticatory incantations until it clouded over ominously, before revealing hazy images of its own demise. Ask it the sex of the baby, Tyrell had urged. She'd immediately stuffed it in a drawer, earning an indignant huff from Earthman. She didn't care. Her incipient child wasn't fodder for any third-sight bullshit fortune-telling. But simply hiding the toxic thing in a drawer wasn't sufficient. There was the obvious. She could simply shatter it. Hell, she could take care of destruction and dispersal in a single move if she just took it up to the roof of her office and chucked it out over the parking lot on a sufficiently windy day. Quick and easy. She'd do it after hours when everyone had gone. No sense hurting anyone. Well, maybe Gerald. That wouldn't be so bad. Of course, destroying the thing on company grounds carried its own risks. It was bad enough that she was avoiding her work. She was supposed to be reviewing those resumes, selecting a new managing editor. It wouldn't help her status as an employee in good standing if she were to lob symbols of her professional ties from the roof of the office. She'd be suspended at the very least, and only if she were exceptionally lucky. 
Twenty years of service counts for something, though, doesn't it? How far does that stretch the limits of what you can get away with? She'd been at Third Sight since her college internship, 19 years old, with never another job in her adult life. Long enough to feel the taint of association spread all through her. Twenty years of writing flagrant lies for steadfast rubes. It was not enough to simply manage the publications, to coordinate the credulous writers with their credulous readers. She was expected to demonstrate her expertise, her psychic talents, through articles of her own. It saved money, after all. Contributing editor was already salaried. No need for freelance fees or royalties. And so she wrote, God help her, a monthly psychic advice column. Dear Persephone, at least they had allowed her the dignity of a pseudonym. She responded to desperate letters as though she had something to offer beyond common sense disguised in the veneer of stupidity that her readers desired. And it was easy. Intoxicating. Fun, even. She had no power save dishonesty itself, but that was enough to change people's lives. Dear college grad, the stars indicate that solid opportunities are hard to come by in these difficult economic times. Travel is recommended. Take the job. Dear still trying, simple rituals are best. Your fertility follows the moon. Tracking your personal lunar cycle will allow you to better time your efforts. Dear Haunted, the poltergeist is in your pipes. Call a plumber. Dear Suspicious, the spirits say he clearly has a secret that he needs to discuss with you, but suggest that you should ask him, instead of them, for the details. More than anything, she hated that she sometimes forgot to hate. And now she had this repulsive glass ball to serve as a monument to her lies. Smashing the ball seemed too easy, unsatisfying. She wanted there to be a step two, something more involved than just watching it blow away. She would almost rather go all the way back to her original whimsical thought which was to take it to the nearest candlepin bowling alley and hurl it down the lane. Maybe it would break against the goofy wooden pegs, and maybe it wouldn't. Either way, it would be off into a new life. But she didn't want it to have a new life. She wanted it, well and truly, dead. Again she thought of asking the ball, of shaking it violently until it coughed up wisdom. Dear Persephone, what should I do with the physical embodiment of my failures? I'm a Pisces. She wasn't about to try such nonsense. She'd sooner eat the thing than give it the satisfaction of actually using it. What would happen if you swallowed glass powder? Was it safe if you ground it finely enough? She could mix it into the dough for a loaf of bread or a batter for cake, then eat the whole thing allow her own body to churn the glass into shit, then send shimmering turds down the pipes to join all the other detritus in the cesspool. That would unequivocally satisfy her yearning for metaphor. But again, was it safe? She was in a destructive mood, sure, but not self-destructive. 
So, how then could she be free of it? She was back, again, to an inane and brutish smashing. For the time being, she reconciled herself to its uninterrupted existence. She had potential employees to screen. That had to be done. She thought of her responsibility, not to the company, but to that soon-to-be person in Charlotte's belly. She tossed the ball onto the desk. It rolled until it collided with the stacks of unread resumes, which toppled over, scattering across the floor. The ball followed the papers down and struck the floor with a solid thump, then came to rest on one of the resumes, magnifying the name beneath it across the full breadth of its spherical surface. Leon Stamatis. Well, thought Gemma, that's a decision made at least. The weirdest job was, I guess, cleaning the bathroom at my job because I never did it before and it was kind of nasty. The Charles Hotel in Cambridge, this lady was from India. She asked me for a cup of tea and the cup of tea was in front of her. Um, okay, so I went to grab it and I gave it to her. So I, she told me she was wealthy, she was rich and um, pretty much everyone does the things for her. So I learned that not to judge just because someone is telling me what to do in the moment. So I just analyze first and then I understand that. I think it would be as a junior counselor. I actually had this one girl who was like picking her nose and she showed me her bugger and I was just like, all right, um, well, okay, if you're that comfortable with me. And like, she just left it there and I didn't know if she wanted me to like touch it. Like she was kind of putting it like really next to me and I was just like, oh, you're going to have to sit down because that's not normal to be picking your nose in front of people. We did a job all the way out in Norfolk. It was, it was this lady who lived right next to like a lake or something. It was during the winter, so the tide had risen when um, the water, like before, this is before it froze. And so all of her um, carpet got wet and it was like that for a while and it was really moldy. And so when we went in there, it just completely smelled disgusting and the place was just trashed. And it was, I think that was the oddest job because it was out in the woods. I didn't, I didn't trust it. Working for Dunkin' Donuts, I have all kind of character coming uh, from the state trooper that one. Um, Waste time in there drinking coffee and donut and looking out the windows to the bomb that want to get shelter from the cold in this cold time, you know, winter time. Mm. So that's, that's a weird place. Lots of different people. All, all different people. characters. Dear Ms. Linzer Coolidge, I am writing in response to your advertisement seeking to fill an open managing editor position at Third Sight Media, as posted on writejobs.com. You'll find my responses to your core spirit questionnaire below. But first, here's some background on my professional history. I began my employment with Mobius Highway as an editorial assistant in 2005, after receiving my master's degree in writing and publishing from Emerson College. I've been steadily advancing my career within the company ever since, and I'm currently employed as managing editor of Trucker Monthly, a lifestyle magazine dedicated to serving professional drivers most particularly big rig cross-country truckers. I'm proud to say that Trucker Monthly experienced a 10% increase in readership at a time when the other titles in our line have seen across-the-board declines. I'm certain that I can bring similar growth to the publications of Third Sight Media by targeting an untapped audience of potential readers similar to myself, people who are not by nature given to supernatural views of the world, 
but who nevertheless feel an instinctive need to perceive some guiding principle that keeps the world coherent, rational, and constant, something to fend off the impending future. To be blunt, the future terrifies me, as does anything unfixed, unknown, or unpredictable. For this reason, I am a thorough and organized worker. I maintain a tight schedule without ever missing a deadline. To veer away from established plans is unconscionable to me, a fact that may frustrate my friends, but which never disappoints my employers. I am a consummate planner, observing the philosophy that choices should be made in advance and then adhered to, epitomizing the spirit of deliberate decision-making. However, I also see the concept of fixed destiny as a palatable substitute, being no less efficient in anticipating future events. I reject the notion that free will and predeterminism form a dichotomy. Will and determination are not opposites, they are both agents of structure, equally pitted against the corruption of chance and chaos. Some would argue that both are illusions. Perhaps that is so, but illusions have power even after they have been dispelled. Just as the placebo effect is undiminished by awareness of the placebo, illusions offer comfort even to those who recognize the lie. Take, for example, the concept of time. There is a gentleman I have encountered on the subway who has introduced me to certain facts about our understanding of time. You might call this man a street prophet or an itinerant philosopher, though most call him the mayor of the red line. He is something of an expert on the history of trains and our relationships to them. Which brings us to the history of time. Time appears inviolate. We are always in this moment, all in the same moment, because we cannot be otherwise. We forget that the simultaneity of moments is a modern invention, one, like so many others, mandated by the needs of industry. Prior to the railroads, time was subjective. It might be 2.30 p.m. in Boston, but 2.47 in New York. Each city kept their own clock, their own local measure, with no compulsion whatsoever to reconcile the two. Time was a chaos of individual perception. The railroads could not function in such chaos. A train arrived one minute and departed the next without lingering long enough to acclimate to local time. Passengers needed to know when to be at the station. If the train was to depart at three o'clock, then everyone in every city along the line needed to agree on when exactly three o'clock was. And so the railroads, as a result, made time a universality, setting a clock in every station and every clock in sync. And that definition of time bled outward to every city the railroad touched. Thus armed with standardized time, that industry proceeded to invent the greatest tool of prognostication the world has ever seen, the train schedule. The train schedule is a magical thing, an addictive fiction, a prophecy that compels its own fulfillment, and this compulsion toward predictive certainty has taken hold throughout our lives, throughout our days, as the organizing principle of a livable life. As an example, I offer my own habit of plan-making. I keep a detailed digital calendar, accessible from any networked device, and meticulously updated throughout my day. If my calendar states that I will be in a particular place, on a particular day, at a particular time, I treat that prediction as resolute fact. I take great solace in the immutability this tool gives the shape of my future. I'm not a fool. I know full well that however ironclad my resolution to see events unfold as I've laid them out, other factors are at play. My train might be delayed. I might get sick. Other people might simply decide not to adhere to the plan we've all agreed to. An uncouth but 
all-too-common behavior. But by treating such plans as unchanging, I'm forced to anticipate contingencies and prepare for them. I monitor all transit advisories, all health advisories. I note the personality quirks of those I make plans with and account for their various styles of unreliability. I plan for where they will be rather than where they say they will be. I adhere to my goals, not because the world is so inherently predictable, but because by believing it so, I make it so. This is what I would bring to Third Sight Media, the perspective of the rational self-deceiver and a set of strategies for appealing to that deliberately superstitious audience. My responses to your core spirit questionnaire are as follows. Question 1. I am a Taurus, a stable, security-minded worker with a strong preference for consistent rather than dynamic environments. Question 2. I have never had a prophetic dream, although I would welcome the experience. Question 3. I habitually carry a $2 bill. I received it as a child, along with my first wallet, and have moved it to each new wallet I've received in succession. Question 4. Blue, but not primary blue. Gray blue, like slate. Question 5. Yes, should communication from beyond the grave be possible, I am willing to sign a 10-year posthumous employment contract, including but not limited to communication via spirit board, manifestation in ectophotography, and attendance at all department meetings conducted in a seance format. Thank you for your consideration. I have enclosed my complete resume for your review. I believe it will demonstrate that I am a capable and steadfast employee. I hope to hear from you soon, so that we may further discuss the skills and experience that I would bring to Third Sight Media. Regards, Leon Stamatis. Wanted. Guy with truck. Must not ask questions. Do not need help moving. Just need you and your truck for a few jobs a month. Must be discreet. Must be able to work with an extremely flexible schedule, available on the fly. Must be okay with night driving. Must be a teetotaler. No drinkers, smokers, mischief makers, or ne'er-do-wells. Truck must have a recently impassed inspection. Truck must not rattle or make any other loud extraneous noises other than the common noise of a common truck which is running at full common capacity. Truck must be completely gassed up at the start of every job. Truck bed must be empty at all times except when in use by us for the job at hand. Truck must be from an American company, not one of those foreign atrocities. Truck must be black. Truck must be clean inside and out. No fast food wrappers or cigarettes in the dashboard ashtray. Truck must not have a single spot of rust. Truck must contain pleasant interior odor at all times. Truck must have been purchased in the last five years. Truck must be a truck, not a van, not an SUV, no one of those other piss-poor excuses for a truck, which are really just cars. Truck. Pay commensurate with experience. Michael Tate had no time to grieve. His best friend had died on a Wonderland roller coaster only 24 hours earlier, and all Michael wanted to do was lie on Leon's couch, down an occasional shot of whiskey, and maybe start crying again every 15 minutes or so. That plan felt about right to him. 
But before he could do any of that, Michael needed to find a job. Mobius Highway had been good work for him, especially with Leon there to guide him past the hazards of office politics, or to spot his mistakes before anyone else and give him a chance to fix them. Michael shouldn't have been so surprised when it all came to an end. Everyone knew the publishing industry was in trouble. Leon survived the layoffs, while Michael didn't. And for once, there was nothing Leon could do to forestall Michael's catastrophe. But when Michael's money ran out, Leon offered to take him in, for as long as it took to get back on his feet. It'll be fun, Michael had promised. Like sharing the dorm back in college. I don't need fun. I don't need fun, Leon had chided. I just need to know just you're need to okay. Know you're okay. Six months later, Michael was still sleeping on Leon's couch, and Leon was dead. Michael had to find a job fast. Today. Without Leon, no one was paying the rent. So he couldn't cry for Leon, because he didn't have time for crying. Right now, he had to figure his shit out. He needed to get back on the job boards, back on the phone. But first he needed to make a sandwich. There was still some chicken cutlet that Leon had fried two days earlier. Michael could save money on food if he carefully planned his progress through the perishables before delving into the pantry and the freezer. Fried chicken cutlet on Italian bread, accompanied by two shots of whiskey. He felt steadier after that, ready to face Craigslist. He'd already applied to all the publishing jobs, writing jobs, editing jobs, all the real jobs for which he had any qualifications. His only remaining recourse was to the etc. jobs. Environmentalist street harasser. Postmodern guerrilla muralist. Guy. With truck. He had already guinea-pigged for a bladder control study, drinking four ounces of pickle brine every two hours around the clock for a week. It had been a good week. He'd earned enough to fully restock Leon's fridge. But there wasn't much left, even in that occupational potluck. He perked up when he heard the phone ringing, but realized it was Leon's phone, not his own. People still called Leon. He let it go to voicemail. If Leon were here, he'd give Michael a pat on the shoulder and tell him to go pound the pavement. Go out there and pound the pavement. And exactly those words, even. Pound, pound the, pavement. the pavement. Like he was living in the 1940s, or whenever it was people said things like that. Michael checked his breath and decided to wait an hour before talking face-to-face -face with any potential employers. But since he already smelled boozy, he might as well have one more shot. He could see Leon scowling at him from beyond the veil. And why shouldn't he? It had been Leon who intervened the first time Michael's drinking got out of hand, six months into his freshman year and just about five minutes shy of flunking out. You have to visualize, you have to visualize your next, your move. next move. Leon and the one said. after that. And the one after that. Where does this move leave Where you? Where does this move leave you? Just like when he tried to teach Michael to play chess. Chess had been too much for Michael. Solitaire was more his speed, but he did it. He visualized his next move. Maybe not the one after that, maybe not that far. But he'd gotten dry before the semester was out. He wished he hadn't kicked over Leon's chessboard after dropping Nika at her place last night. He wished he hadn't thrown his own deck of cards out the window. Now look at him. He'd gone to the window 15 minutes later, hoping he could get his cards back, hoping they'd stayed in the box. No luck. 
They'd blown out over the whole yard, much of the deck blown right back against the house, where the card stuck to the damp siding. He reached out and plucked a four of spades from beside the window, the only card within arm's length. Can't do much with a four of spades, he'd reasoned. So he poured himself a drink instead. His first. In over a decade. Why had Leon gone to the effort all those years ago? Why confiscate Michael's bottles? Stage an intervention for some kid he barely knew? And why had it worked? What possessed Michael to listen to this dour fuss budget who wanted to take away his party? But he had listened. And he kept on listening for the next four years to any advice Leon had for him, whether he was optimizing his class schedule or asking out Melinda Moskowitz. And so long as Michael kept taking Leon's advice, things turned out more or less all right. So now what? Now, who would tell Michael not to down another shot? No one would. And there it went, while the ghost of Leon shook his head. You know what, Michael? Go ahead. Just for tonight, do what you need to do. Wreck yourself, if that's what it takes. Michael lifted his glass in salute to the ghost of Leon's irrefutable sagacity. But just tonight, Michael. Tomorrow, my alarm clock is going to wake you up at 6.30 a.m. You won't ignore it. You'll get up off the floor and pick up your plate, and your empty bottle, and your shot glass, and my chest set. At 6.45, you'll clean the puke from the throw rug. At 7, you'll start coffee brewing, then get into the shower. At 7.20, you'll start writing my eulogy. You'll put your suit on at 8, and by 8.30, you'll be on your way to my funeral. Go to my funeral, Michael. You go there, and you look at me laying there, and you take that in. By noon, you stop being a jackass, and you get on with it. And one last thing. Check my voicemail. In the morning, after you shower, but before you leave, listen to the messages. It's important. Michael woke up on the floor, beside the couch, one leg on the coffee table and one tangled in the cord to the vacuum cleaner. The alarm was ringing out from Leon's bedroom. It was 6.32. Michael was already running late. He disentangled himself from the vacuum and got to his feet, briefly, before slipping on the sandwich plate and crashing back to the floor. The plate shattered against the opposite wall, and the shot glass rolled under the couch to join the black knight and a handful of pawns. Michael hunted down a broom and dustpan. He was determined to follow Leon's advice, as he always did. To the letter. By 6.53, he'd started cleaning up his vomit. At 7.10, he put on coffee and took himself to the shower. At 7.25, he sat down with his coffee and his laptop, meaning to write what he needed to write, his remembrance of his friend, his final farewell to the most indispensable person in his life. But first, he checked Leon's phone. The message was from a woman named Gemma, offering Leon a job. Michael wasn't Leon. But he'd answered the right phone, and that was close enough. By 8.45, he was out the door.
overwhelmed by everything in Pechog. Overwhelmed by everything in Pechog. Sorry, I should have asked you about that one. What the hell is that? That's, that's Pechog. Overwhelmed by everything in Pechagog. <laughs> The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish. Please try to get some sleep tonight. I've been trying to sleep all week. Nothing helps. You could try sleep sound. No thanks. You've had enough nightmares for the both of us. Let me go! Come on. The medication has nothing to do with that. I haven't had a bad dream in ages. (laughs) Ever since your highly problematic affair in Idaho? Stop. Nothing happened. Nothing happened. Well, you still haven't told me who you're bringing to graduation. Oh, your heart is racing. How can you tell? You're lying on top of me. What if I don't want anyone else to know yet? And it wasn't a bad dream? I don't know. Christopher, you know. Can't you appreciate that I'm trying to help you here? Thanks for the pills, Lils. Dreamers, Season 2 by Broken Crown Productions. Tune in weekly wherever you listen to podcasts. Mm